This is Madeline Lenore, host of Cult Movie Attack, and I want to tell you how easy it is to share what you're passionate about with Anchor. If you're new to podcasting, Anchor makes it simple to get started. They have easy to follow editing tools, cool musical selections, and no restrictions on how much you can record. Anchor will also distribute your podcast across multiple platforms. They even have options that allow you to accept donations and monthly contributions from your listeners. And what's great about all this is that it's free. That is a big deal if you're like me and working on a limited budget. So, if you're looking to dip your toe into podcasting, give Anchor a try. Again, it's absolutely free. Go to the Anchor FM website to learn more. Because of the content of some movies, there may be discussion of violence, gore, sexuality, and other mature themes. The show may not be suitable for some listeners, including children. Discretion is advised. Hello, and welcome to Cult Movie Attack. This is a podcast dedicated to reviewing cult movies while exploring their impact on film history and pop culture. I'm your host, Madeline Lenore. We continue with the ongoing series highlighting films from MGM's original Midnight Movie Collection, as first released by American International Pictures. On this episode, we look at a stock car film. 1967 was a year of transition for AIP. Beach party films, which had been popular earlier in the decade, were no longer in vogue. But the studio had not yet made the move toward hippie and biker pictures that would soon hit the landscape for the late 1960s. In the middle of those periods came the sub-genre of race car movies. With a combination of boozy party scenes and devil-may-care drivers looking for a thrill on the track, race car movies were the perfect stopgap for AIP to keep their studio afloat. Today, we talk about a movie featuring two former teen sensations who made the move to becoming film stars and spent several years starring in AIP features. Today's picture is Thunder Alley. Tommy Callahan is a top race car driver who races on the edge. He's fired by his current team after he suffers a blackout and causes the death of another driver on the track. Tommy tries to get an old friend to sign him on, but no one from that team wants to work with Killer Callahan, as Tommy is now known. Tommy comes across a thrill circus owned by Pete Madsen and signs on as a stunt driver. It's there that Tommy meets Francie, Pete's daughter, along with her boyfriend, Eddie Sands. Both Francie and Eddie also drive for the stunt show. When he's not working, Tommy trains Eddie to become a professional driver. Eddie is a quick study and wins his first race. This catches the attention of Tommy's money-hungry girlfriend, Annie Blaine, who begins to scheme her way into Eddie's life and steal him from Francie. Tommy and Francie don't see eye to eye at first, 
but he reveals his blackouts to her and Francie is concerned. They work together during a race. Tommy begins having another blackout but pulls through. Tommy soon connects a childhood accident involving his brother as the starting point of his fainting spells. The finale has Tommy and Eddie competing in Darlington as Pete finances the racing team Tommy tried to sign on with after his first deadly accident. Francie has dumped the overbearing Eddie and is moving forward with Tommy. Francie provokes Eddie into making mistakes on the track, causing him to crash. Tommy goes on to win the race and is joined by Francie in the winner's circle. Originally titled Malibu 500 and Rebel 500 at different times, the movie was directed by Richard Rush, who had worked on several low-budget features and was recommended for the job by Annette Funicello's then-husband, who was Rush's agent. Known as a rebel himself at the time, Rush fit in with what AIP wanted to offer to their young audience. Factor Alley only received modest reviews, but AIP liked Rush's work enough to have him direct two more of their movies the following year. Psych Out, featuring Jack Nicholson, and The Savage 7, an outlaw biker movie with cinematography by the acclaimed Laszlo Kovacs. Richard Rush was an interesting person. After enjoying a good run as an independent director, he seemed ready for the move to the mainstream. He directed a 1970 college comedy calling Getting Straight, which was the highest grossing movie for Columbia that year. However, Rush spent the next 20 years with many projects in production limbo, and most of the few movies that did come out for him were not well received. Air America was a Vietnam action comedy film released in 1990. Rush developed it, but was paid full salary to walk away while it was still in pre-production. It would eventually star Mel Gibson and Robert Downey Jr. and would be badly reviewed, as well as being divisive for its betrayal of the so-called CIA secret airline. Color of Night, which came out in 1994, was the first Disney-released movie to carry an NC-17 rating, though wide-scale versions were toned down to get an R rating. Apparently, Rush did not approve these final cuts. Starring Bruce Willis and Jane March, the erotic thriller was widely panned by critics and tanked at the box office, making back less than half its production budget. To add insult to injury, Color of Night won the Golden Raspberry Award Razzie as the worst movie that year. Even Russia's biggest mainstream success was not without problems. Released in 1980, The Man became a cult favorite on the Blu-ray circuit, but was poorly distributed during its theatrical run. Even after receiving three Oscar nominations, including Best Director, 20th Century Fox only increased distribution by three screens. Rush later learned the studio only made around 200 prints of the movie instead of the 1,000 needed for a major film release during that time. In writing this episode, I learned that Richard Rush passed away just a week prior to his birthday, his 92nd birthday that is, in April 2021. His last credit was a look back at the stuntman, 
called The Sinister Saga of Making the Stuntman, which was released in 2000. Fabian comes across solid enough in his role as the coolly detached Tommy. He doesn't have the biggest acting range, but what he does have plays pretty good on screen, and many felt that he was a better actor than singer. His career as a pop star had basically ended in the early 1960s after he bought out his record contract. 20th Century Fox was looking to continue the success they had enjoyed with other singers such as Elvis Presley and Pat Boone. They signed Fabian to a long-term deal and cast him in the 1959 movie Hound Dog Man. It was not a hit and he did not become the movie star Fox had hoped for, but he did become an in-demand actor working steadily in TV and earning solid supporting roles in movies. When Fox briefly closed due to Cleopatra being so expensive, Fabian was among the actors Fox opted to release when they reopened. He eventually found his way to AIP, where Samuel Z. Arkoff signed him to a seven-picture deal. Thunder Alley was the third movie in that deal. Annette Funicello does well as the perky and sassy Francie. She seemed to be looking to evolve her persona as a former musketeer into something more mature that would better serve her career. Annette feels breezy and at ease in the role. She also shows off decent singing chops with a version of What's a Girl to Do? However, Thunder Alley was her last film with AIP, having made several beach party films earlier in the decade. And unfortunately, being with AIP that long often labeled talent a certain way. Annette basically disappeared from movies after this, beyond a cameo in the 1968 Monkeys film Head and a nostalgia role in 1987's Back to the Beach. The supporting cast, featuring Jan Murray as Pete and Diane McVeigh as Annie, gives the movie a good balance. The only acting misfire is from Warren Berlinger, who is Eddie, is supposed to be a tryhard, but tries too hard at being a tryhard. He seems to give his lines through gritted teeth and pulls facial expressions that don't seem to fit in with anything else. The racing scenes are good, but were filmed long before Thunder Alley was made. This was done to provide AIP with stock footage across several films, and as such, the racing doesn't seem fully integrated into the story. AIP, with its penny-pinching ways, didn't do much to match up the races with the rest of the movie in terms of color and overall crispness. It doesn't take away from the movie, but it's something one notices. Richard Rush lamented how little control he had over things like that, though he seemed to enjoy directing the film. The overall story is light on substance, but that's standard for a paint-by-the-numbers movie like this. As I mentioned earlier, AIP was transitioning from beach romances to bandit and psychedelic dramas. They met in the middle of the muscle car scene, still holding on to lovey-dovey tropes while centered around the gritty world of the 1960s racing scene. 
Thunder Alley feels too slick around the edges for that, maybe in part because of the two leads being so well known for their wholesome personas pre-AIP, and in Annette's case, even during her AIP tenure. Despite its limitations, Thunder Alley is a pleasant watch. That's what impresses most about AIP. Despite limited resources and constantly having to change course to whatever made them the most money at any given time, most of their movies often entertain. Give credit to co-founder Samuel Z. Arkoff, who developed the Arkoff formula. That formula boils down to what content would attract the most teenagers and young adults to an AIP movie. Who are their target audience? AIP had that down to near perfection, and it served them well for a quarter century. We'll talk more about the Arkoff formula in a future episode. Thank you for listening to Cult Movie Attack. This episode was written, narrated, produced, and edited by Madeline Lenore. That would be me. Some of the information you heard was first featured in a 2011 Richard Rush interview conducted by Noel Murray of the AV Club. The interview can be found on avclub.com. If you enjoyed the show, please tell other movie fans about the podcast. One way to spread the word is to follow the show on Twitter and Instagram. They have the same handle, and that handle is Cult Movie Attack. That's all one word, Cult Movie Attack. Also, please consider showing your support by donating at my Ko-fi page at ko-fi.com backslash Cult Movie Attack. Contributions will be used to help improve the podcast. I post information about upcoming episodes and any special events across all my platforms. So please follow the show and keep up with the comings and goings of Cult Movie Attack. I hope you join me again as I continue my journey to watching and reviewing On the Edge movies. Thank you, and remember to cult it up. Be good and take care.